So welcome to uh, Political OD episode 25. We've come a long way since we started uh, this little podcast. And for a change, we thought we'd have a guest along today. And as we've talked about the protocol and mentioned in passing the uh, judicial review that's uh, currently in in play in our our court uh, on the protocol, uh, we'd invite Jim Allister to come along today with his legal hat on uh, as part of the uh, triumvirate that helped really drive that judicial review and uh, take some time out to explain the concepts. And unlike Nolan, every few minutes or a few sentences, we won't be shouting but Brexit at him. So he'll actually get a chance to explain what the judicial review is about. So uh, without sort of going on any further, Jim, welcome today. And perhaps you'd like to just start with that explanation of the core elements of the judicial review and how important it is. Well, thank you very much for the opportunity. Uh, I do value that because I think the more that people understand, not just what the protocol means, but what needs to be done about it, it is critical to the essential campaign to unstitch the protocol. And within that uh, tapestry, uh, the uh, judicial review is a significant piece. It cannot be the only answer, but it is a significant part. So What's the judicial review all about? Well, it's about legally challenging the entire basis and the legal status of the protocol by contending that the very making of the protocol was itself unlawful. The first premise for making that assertion is that it is an established principle of law when it comes to international treaties that no government can make a treaty which conflicts with its domestic law. And of course, the essential conflict between a protocol which sets Northern Ireland apart, which puts it on different trading terms, which puts it in a foreign single market for goods, subject to a foreign customs code and a foreign VAT regime, the essential premise for saying that you cannot do that is because of Article 6 of the Acts of Union in 1800. In 1800, two Acts of Union were passed, one mirroring the other, one in the Parliament in Ireland and one in the Parliament in London, and both have a common Article 6. And Article 6 is very clear, and it is the economic basis of the Union. And it proclaims in layman's terms that you cannot fetter trade within or between the United Kingdom, that all citizens of what then became the United Kingdom were entitled to have and to expect the same privileges and the same opportunities in terms of trade and commerce. And of course, the protocol completely turns that on its head as far as Northern Ireland is concerned because it subjects us to foreign laws that we do not make, that we cannot change, touching upon most of our economy under the guise of being within the EU single market for goods and the EU customs code and VAT regime. And a consequence of that is the looming tariffs on trade between the other part of the United Kingdom, Great Britain and Northern Ireland, courtesy of the protocol uh, in that 
we would have to apply the EU's customs code and with it comes tariffs. So the first contention in the judicial review is that the protocol ab initio is unlawful because it cannot be reconciled with the acts of union, most specifically article six. Now in the running of the judicial review, it was very interesting that whereas the government initially on paper sought to argue that there wasn't a breach of Article 6, because really there is no border in the REC, that soon became so untenable that they resorted to their Plan B argument. And their Plan B argument is very alarming for anyone who believes in the union, because their Plan B argument was well, if there's a breach of Article 6, it doesn't matter because the effect of the withdrawal act was to impliedly repeal Article 6. So here you have a conservative and unionist government instructing its barristers in the High Court in Belfast to argue that what the protocol does is to repeal a key portion of the Act of Union. That is an astounding assertion. And it's an astounding assertion not just for Northern Ireland, but in the context of Scotland and other attempts to break up the Union, it is equally astounding. So one thing that this judicial review has already flushed out is the government on that contention, that they are now saying that the Acts of Union in that regard have already been impliedly repealed. Now, of course, we argue, no, constitutional law is very clear that whereas in the ordinary run of the mill legislation, the latest piece of legislation will, where it conflicts with an earlier piece, be interpreted as having impliedly repealed the earlier. But there is very strong dicta from a number of constitutional cases which say you can do that with ordinary legislation, you cannot do it with constitutional legislation. And the acts of union most assuredly are constitutional legislation. And therefore, if the government wanted and intended to repeal Article 6 in any form, then they would have had to have done it expressly in the Withdrawal Act. And they didn't do that. And therefore, having failed to do that, the protocol fails the Article 6 test and therefore is unsustainable and unlawful in that regard. And that politically is a crucial point going forward. Indeed, the very government argument of implied repeal, and they're really saying not done openly, done accidentally, they might say, done secretly, we might say, the ramifications of that are such that it confirms everything we've ever said about the protocol, that it is union dismantling, that it is unstitching the union. And here is the government of the United Kingdom now saying, yeah, it did. It unstitched Article 6 of the Act of Union. That is a colossal political statement and one which this case is helping to flush out and one which will be at the core when this case ultimately goes to the Supreme Court. Amongst the other 
legal arguments were, of course, uh, contentions about Section 1 of the Northern Ireland Act of 1998, which is supposed to guarantee that there can be no constitutional change without the consent of the people of Northern Ireland. Now, we are saying not only is there constitutional change in the sense of Article 6 of the Act of Union now being disapplied to us, which would be constitutional change in itself, but also the fact that many laws governing aspects of our economy are now made not in Belfast, not in London, but in a foreign jurisdiction. And how is that? Well, we, as Annex 2 of the protocol shows, are immediately subject to over 300 EU rules and regulations that we cannot change, that only Brussels can change and add to, and they apply to all the matters that govern the EU single market for goods, that govern their customs code, that govern their VAT regime, and all those laws which govern all those things are also, of course, overseen by a foreign court, namely the European Court of Justice. So we are arguing that that is a second dimension to the constitutional change which is being perfected. And we put it like this in court. If the protocol can say that laws that govern an aspect of our lives economically can be made in Brussels, then what is to stop legislation saying that equally laws can be made in some other foreign jurisdiction, such as in Dol Erin? It's the same principle. Now, if our argument is, if that were to happen, who would say that Section 1 of the Northern Ireland Act and the right to constitutional certainty and the right to no constitutional change had not been breached. Uh, and therefore we say section one has been breached by the protocol and that without consent, the very consent upon which that act and the Belfast Agreement was supposedly built. So we say not only is it a fundamental assault on the building blocks of the acts of union, but it is a fundamental assault on another constitutional act, the Northern Ireland Act of 1998, which guaranteed no constitutional change, but by that transfer of sovereignty, and that's what it is. When you say that laws shall not be made in your own country, but will be made in a foreign jurisdiction, that's a transfer of sovereignty. And a transfer of sovereignty equals constitutional change. So that is the argument in that regard. And flowing from that, there are further arguments that there has been a breach of human rights legislation because a fundamental tenant of various international human rights provisions is that a country and its people are entitled to be governed by the laws that they make through their representatives. And if, therefore, we can now be governed by laws we don't make, have no input to, cannot change, but are only a rule taker uh, of such laws, then we say that fundamental democratic principle has been uh, infringed and denied. And indeed, an interesting little twist in the tail of that argument is 
we say that since the EU treaties guarantee that there shall be democratic accountability, they, even they, the EU, should not have made the protocol agreement because they were interposing something which offends their own treaties, namely that any people anywhere should be governed by laws other than those that they make or an, an international organization to which they belong. So those are the fundamental arguments. There were more, but that's the gist of the argument against the protocol. We believe in law, it's a strong argument. That doesn't mean, particularly maybe in circumstances where we have a local judge with a political history, in this case, which would leave him ill-disposed to those type of arguments maybe, but wearing his legal judicial hat, we say he needs to apply the law and the law is clear. And if he does, he should strike down the protocol. If he doesn't, then of course we proceed through various other appeal processes. And I can talk you through those if you wish. Uh, thanks very much, Jim. I think that's uh, fairly clear. There's three threads there. Uh, the economic argument, if you like, which emanates out of the Act of Union, uh, the Section 1 Northern Ireland Act, which fundamentally says this is in breach of the Good Friday Agreement, that the European Union itself says is their primary concern in all this, they say. So uh, there's that. And then there's obviously the human rights aspect at the very end. Can we just pick up, and this may take it in process, because judicial review is really an administrative court where you're really looking at how the government made its decision. And we know in many other judicial reviews that basically what happens is it's sent back to whoever made that decision and said, you need to think again. Even if this went to the Supreme Court, and I'm presuming we're talking about going high court and ultimately Supreme Court, let's not go into everything in between, but it ends up in the Supreme Court and the Supreme Court rules in the favour of the of the uh, of those bringing the judicial review. It does end up simply going back to the UK government. So perhaps you'd like to suggest what are the options then for the UK government, both legally and then, of course, politically, because those two things are very, very different. Mm -hmm. Well, if, if the ultimate outcome is that we are right, that the protocol could never be made in the first place because it conflicts with a fundamental constitutional provision and it has not been repealed expressly as it would need to be, an option for the government would be to, re to legislate expressly to repeal Article 6 of the Acts of Union. But that would be a colossal step for a conservative and unionist government, which is fighting to keep Scotland in the union. If you had a Westminster government under Boris Johnson going to the House of Commons and saying, we want to deliberately and consciously repeal a key cornerstone of the acts of union, then that would have such political ramifications. I don't believe they could or would do it. So by bringing that into the spotlight, I think we would put the government in a position where they would find that a nigh impossible task. What the government should be doing is, if they were faced with defeat in the judicial review, 
it affords them the best possible justification for going back to Brussels and saying, we tried, but our legal system says it's unlawful. Therefore, we have to start again. You know, why would the government, given all the economic damage that the protocol is causing, and I haven't talked about that, and it's colossal, but for me, the most significant damage, because it is permanent, is the constitutional damage. Why would a government faced with a failing protocol that is bringing all the societal and economic damage want to reinforce it by replacing it with something the same? I think any government with any wit would use that opportunity and that leverage to say to Brussels, sorry, boys, we tried. It can't be done. No, but no one can forecast what a government would do, but they certainly would be in very strong ground for using to their advantage a negative outcome for them on the judicial review. Before, I I think Owen has probably a couple of questions, but before we go there, the point on the human rights legislation that the EU would be in breach of its own law, would there be value then in going through an Irish court potentially claiming that the protocol is not valid because and taking it through the ECJ through Dublin? Well, I don't think politically it's what one would wish to do because we'd be conceding <laughs> in some fashion uh, some sort of aegis and um, jurisdiction uh, to the EU that I don't think anyone from the unionist side of this argument would wish to do. Um, but I think the EU would be in an embarrassing position of having made a treaty which broke their own laws. Uh, And uh, I think that too, if that were a finding, would put them in a much more malleable state if and when the British government had to return to them. But we have had instances where unionists have taken constitutional issues to the Dublin courts and challenged them in the Dublin courts. So challenged them, the, yes, yes, we had that going way back to the, um, the Jimsy uh, way, way back. It could be done. It's not something that I think any real thought has been given to. We're, we're focused on the battle in hand. We're determined to see it right through because we think that we have a good cause. And I think all of us involved in this case are very conscious of what the protocol does, that it it effectively is dismantling the union. Of course, the other big economic consequence of the protocol, which also has constitutional ramifications, is by cutting us off from our biggest market and forcing a business to reorientate towards the Republic. It is designed, of course, to build the all-island economy to more and more causes to cease to look to London economically and look more to Dublin and to Brussels. And all of that, of course, has a constitutional and political motivation on the very simple premise that ultimately it's a relatively short step from economic unity to political unity. Uh, and I've no doubt that that is part of the master plan that lies behind the protocol. And that's why it's imperative that we seek to stop it at the earliest opportunity because if it if it beds in and starts that reorientation then you know the thought of waiting to 2024 to unstitch part of it isn't very viable 
Owen, would you like to come? Um, yes, uh, yes, David. Thanks, and and thanks, Jim. I think um, you know it's a very powerful point that you make about it not being just economic consequences of the protocol that we have to look out for, but also the constitutional consequences. Firstly, I'd just like to go back to a point you made on the economic consequences, because I think there's a perception that we've seen what the protocol is going to do to us. And, mm. you know, it, it, its worst effects have already been put in, in place, but that's not the case at all. Yeah. And you spoke about uh, looming tariffs. Now, again, I think a lot of people, myself included, maybe thought that perhaps withdrawal agreement had taken tariffs out of the, the question, but you're saying that because of the EU customs code, that courtesy of the protocol, we could yet see tariffs coming? Yes, because the presumption in the protocol is that goods coming from GB to Northern Ireland are at risk of moving into the EU single market. And on the premise of that presumption that they are at risk, then tariffs will be applied to those goods. And then if they don't move into the EU single market, and you can demonstrate that, then you, the business in Northern Ireland, can reclaim the tariffs, but you'll pay them in the first place. So that is, that's, that's under us. That's because we're now going to be under the EU customs code. You know, this presumption that all goods are at risk is going to be the peg upon which they hang tariffs on all these things. And we haven't seen any of that because we're still in grace periods. Uh, but once these grace periods pass, that's what awaits us. Uh, and that's going to be quite crippling economically. I mean, that's a, that's a terrifying prospect. And just to develop that, I mean, David, David mentioned your appearance in Nolan, and I hope we've given you more space than Stephen Nolan did to, have. Uh, to, to, to develop your arguments, because I know, you know, Stephen Nolan has his strengths, and one of his strengths is that he's prepared to challenge everybody, but listening isn't one of his strengths, I don't think. <laughs> but... You know, the, one of the one of the arguments that I've made throughout the uh, this period is that the decision of people in Northern Ireland um, to be part of the UK, as, as underwritten by the principle of consent, means that they have to be able to participate in a nationwide referendum like the Brexit referendum on the same basis yes. as the rest of the UK, which also yes. means, of course, in turn, that they have to be treated the same when the result is implemented. Otherwise, yeah. you know, as you've argued in court, the Northern Ireland Act and all of these things don't really mean an awful lot at all. Mm. But throughout this process, we've had, you know, Stephen Nolan's kind of line of questioning uh, was but Brexit. And we keep hearing people saying, oh, but this is all because of Brexit. And how do you respond to those people whose only answer to any of these difficulties is to Go back to Brexit and say Brexit is responsible for all of this. Before you start, I think I think the point there, just to re-emphasize it, is is that it's not just that this is because of, of Brexit, but the, the protocol is a logical consequence of Brexit, yeah. which seems to have come into yeah. a parlance. Yeah, it, it is very much the parlance, but I think it's also a reflection of the intellectual shallowness of those who made that argument, because we're in this situation of protocol because we didn't get Brexit, not because of Brexit. We didn't get Brexit, we got the protocol, and the protocol is not Brexit. Brexit is about leaving the EU single market for goods. We were left behind. 
Brexit is about not being under the EU customs code. We are. Brexit is about not being under the EU VAT regime. We are. Brexit is about making our own laws. We don't on those aspects. Brexit is about not being subject to foreign court jurisdiction. We are on all those subjects. So we didn't get Brexit. We got the, um, the, uh, something that's the very antithesis of Brexit, that which denies us Brexit and holds us in large measure in the EU. And as to those who say, oh, well, you voted for Brexit, suck it up. No, I voted for what it said on my ballot paper. And what it said on my ballot paper was, did I want the United Kingdom to leave the EU? Did not say, would you like GB to leave and leave Northern Ireland behind? That's what he got. So there is no democratic legitimacy in the point that's made, you voted for Brexit, therefore suck it up, this is what you got. We didn't. We didn't vote for this. Uh, and there is no consent to this. And there is no consent from anyone that I've encountered in the unionist community for the protocol. Therefore, the whole notion, particularly from those who talk most about consent, the protocol flies in the face of all of that. Uh, and, you know, therefore, I, do, I concede no ground on that argument uh, whatsoever. Uh, and I think it's, it's a fatuous suggestion that's made by those who don't want to face up to the realities of the protocol and the fact that it is, in fact, destructive of the, our part in the country of which we're supposed to be a part. And I suppose just to follow that up, then how do you reflect on the role that people have played on the sort of Remain or Nationalist side and actually pushing some sort of protocol-like situation and the fact that now they want to say own it to somebody like you or to somebody like me who voted leave, albeit with reservations, but who doesn't see why this should be my responsibility at all because it was not the outcome that yeah. I or you yeah. espoused at any point. No, I think, I think you have to recognise that Remainers of a nationalist tradition see the pain of the protocol as worth paying because it does, they recognise, advance the cause of Irish unity. Because if you can create economic unity in the island of Ireland, as I've said, you're well on your way to where you want to get to. Uh, so that is why those who've been demanding rigorous implementation uh, are in fact doing that because they're prepared to suck up the pain into, in pursuit of their long-term goal. Uh, and th that is why uh, to nationalists, the protocol is so sweet because politically, it advances their cause way beyond what they could have ever dreamed about. And as for the argument, oh, there had to be a border in the Irish Sea because you couldn't put it on the island of, island of Ireland. Why not? Where's the international frontier? You know, if the, if the EU wants to protect its single market, and if that's what this is supposed to be all about, then that's a matter for the EU. It's not the matter for the UK government as their surrogate to protect the EU single market. So if the EU wants to protect their single market, then let them put it where within their single market, which could be within the territory of the Irish Republic. But, you know, we've just been swept away with this nonsense that it would breach the Belfast Agreement. There's not a word in the Belfast Agreement which suggests that uh, Northern Ireland and the Republic 
must be in the same single market for goods, must be subject to the same customs code, that you can't have a trade border on the island of Ireland. None of that is in the Belfast Agreement. But the spinning has produced a perception that it's there and it's not. Uh, you know, I've, I've many, I've, sometimes in the Assembly held up the Belfast Agreement and said, show me one word in this where it says there cannot be a border on the island of Ireland. Show me one word where it says we cannot be in the same single market as the rest of the United Kingdom and their customs union and everything else. It's not there. Uh, but of course, it has been exploited and hyped politically because the motivation behind both nationalists who drove the border to the Irish Sea, and we all remember Radke's uh, infamous uh, waving of the, um, the, the bombed border posts, uh, which was, of course, the product of terrorism, not the product of the fact there was a customs post there, uh, as a threat that if we put the border where it should be, there would be violence. And make no mistake about it, the border is in the Irish Sea, courtesy of the threat of violence. You know, we had some constitutional nationalists uh, saying there would be civil disobedience and worse if there was a single camera on the border. And to their absolute disgrace, the British government conceded that, that you couldn't even have a camera on the Irish border. Now they're starting to talk, oh, well, to ameliorate some of the protocol, maybe we can have trusted traders gains. Where did we hear that? We heard that from people like myself and others who argued that there's going to have to be uh, checks on the border, do it by trusted trader games. But oh no, that was nonsense. That wasn't workable because they needed and they wanted to push Northern Ireland out of the United Kingdom. And that was the game plan of the EU from day one. The penalty for the United Kingdom for daring to leave would be Northern Ireland. That would be the cost. And I believe you'll see it further in the EU's desires to dismember the EU in the manner in which they will treat, if we get to a Scottish referendum, uh, the, uh, the kid gloves they will offer to Scotland for a route back into the EU in, in breach of all their own supposed protocols of how you do that in order to encourage the breakup of the United Kingdom. So I'm under no illusion that the EU was wholly malevolent in this, in, in designing the protocol, uh, and they were pushed into that. Uh, they, they didn't have to be pushed, but they were assisted in that position by the Irish Republic and, of course, by a fifth column in Northern Ireland itself. Uh, maybe just, I, I mean, and, and this is one curious thing of the Nationals' position in arguing this, this best of both worlds line that they've often put forward in terms of the special agreement, because if Northern Ireland now represents the best of both worlds, wither Irish unity? Because why on earth would you want to leave the best of both worlds for something suboptimal. It's a strange position for nationalism to almost be arguing against its own goal. And I know that- and I love this nationalism. <laughs> it's a strange position for Brandon Lewis to make. Uh, because if he's saying it's the best of both worlds, why doesn't he want it for his constituents? Well, indeed. Because it's not, it's not the best of both worlds. When your main market is GB, and that's where most of your supplies come for, be it manufacturing or agri-food industry or anything you want to mention. Uh, and then you create tariffs and barriers in that main market. How is it the best of both worlds to cut yourself off from your main market in the hope that you'll be able to, uh, to develop markets elsewhere? It's a, it's a patent nonsense. Uh, and, you know, to say to a company, oh, come invest in Northern Ireland, 
you can have the best of both worlds. Uh, you can sell into GB, which is true, and you can sell into the EU, which is true. But the bit they never tell them is, but if you want to bring your supplies in, if you want to bring your raw materials in from GB, forget it. You'll pay over the odds because we're going to subject you to mammoth checks uh, and uh, uh, tariffs. You know, it's not the best of both worlds. It's the worst of both worlds, as far as I'm concerned, uh, because we are in a situation governed by laws we can't change or make. That for any Democrat should be absolute anathema. And yet you have people like the Alliance Party who profess themselves to be great Democrats, embracing the protocol and demanding its rigorous implementation, demanding the rigorous implementation that we should be denied the right to make our own laws. What sort of Democrats are they? Owen? All right, well, I, I was just curious, Jim, as to how you viewed the prospects of Lord Frost, say, renegotiating any of this to anybody's great advantage. Is that a just a dead rubber? Is that not going to happen? Well, you have to remember, Lord Frost is the man who did negotiate this. So he's not some innocent party that suddenly come along and said, oh, this is awful. This is what he produced. No, my take on Lord Frost is that he is focused very much on ameliorating the worst aspects, uh, uh, rubbing down the barnacles, I think his boss said, uh, of the protocol. But that is of no interest because none of that addresses the constitutional obscenity that is the protocol. It's not about making it a bit less burdensome to bring your cattle from GB to Northern Ireland or to bring your fertilizer or to bring your compounds for your feedstuffs. It's about the principle that we are being treated so differently and left behind within a market that the kingdom voted to leave. Those are the principles. And, you know, Lord Frost, uh, I wish he would, um, he would come to the realisation of the utter folly of the protocol. And maybe if we get the right result in this judicial review, he'll have no option. Uh, that's why I said earlier, it would give the government good leverage if they do it to use it. But when you have a government that's arguing that they have already repealed Article 6 of the Acts of Union impliedly, uh, then it doesn't give you a lot of confidence, which is why the judicial review is important to force that to the top of the political agenda. I, I, I was asked in February to help put together a panel to look at the impact of the protocol, particularly small businesses, but on businesses mm. in Northern Ireland, uh, which would have been feeding into... Uh, the central office policy for the Conservative Party. Now, since February, I'm providing quite a good list of a very great mix of, of, of small business in particular. Um, we've heard nothing more. I mean, how much is the, the Frost-Boris talk about, you know, let's be tough with the EU on the protocol? How much of that is simply optics to keep their own people happy and distracted uh, while, as you say, going to do very much except put it on a long finger and keep pushing it back until maybe after the next assembly elections so that uh, the protocol will not be such a big issue as we run into May next year? Well, I think you're, you're, you're probably right. And, you know, I'm back to the point that Lord Forrest was the man who put this upon us uh, with Boris. So uh, I think he has a credibility problem to start with. But if he has come to recognise uh, problems, then he needs to go the whole way. Now, 
the applicants in the judicial review were meeting this morning uh, just for a debrief from our legal team. And one of the things that we're going to take forward is we do recognise how astounding it is that this government is arguing that they've already repealed yeah. a key part of the Act of Union. And yet that has passed virtue on notice. So we're going to launch an initiative with uh, people in and close to government to highlight the constitutional ramifications of that, not least in the context of Scotland. And we're probably going to do something over at Westminster in that regard, because we do want to get the message out. You know, you take someone like Douglas Ross, who's fighting to save the union in Scotland. How impressed is he going to be to discover that his own government has already said, never worry about it, we've already repealed parts of the Acts of Union. You know, I would have thought that would be very disconcerting for unionists in Scotland who can see the real threat that they're under. So we do need to get that message out and we have a plan of action to try and do that. Just a reminder to people listening, uh, it takes money to, to take the judicial review and there is a crowd justice uh, a fund uh, page that uh, we'll put on our websites uh, that people can actually make a donation to the protocol fight. Jim, just perhaps you've been talking about next steps such as picking out particular aspects of the case and taking it in, in campaign terms into, into Westminster. Are there uh, What are the next steps on the protocol route generally? Well, well, first of all, of course, the next legal steps are that we get judgment, which I suspect may not be till September. Um, it could be sooner, but uh, whenever it comes, one side or the other is bound to appeal the decision. Right. Certainly, if it goes against us, we will be uh, appealing it. Now, the next regular step is it goes to our own Court of Appeal and from them to the Supreme Court with the Supreme Court's lead. But there is a mechanism where if both sides are agreed and the Supreme Court consents that you can leapfrog the Court of Appeal and go straight to the Supreme Court. That's what we'd like to do. People might remember that happened in the Asher's case because it was very, very clear. No matter who won in the lower rounds, this was going all the distance. Uh, and therefore, what was the point in needlessly delaying that? Our hope and expectation would be that we would be able to move directly from first instance to the Supreme Court, uh, avoiding the diversion into our own Court of Appeal. So if that happens, that will obviously speed the process. Could see us getting to the Supreme Court by the end of the year or shortly thereafter. I think there are big constitutional questions here for the Supreme Court to adjudicate on. If we ultimately win, then of course, it effectively means the protocol is dead in the water or what it is and the government would have to go back to renegotiate something different. Okay, um, just, just before you move on, would that simply be in relation to the protocol and the withdrawal agreement? Do you think the EU would say both are out the window if one doesn't well, stand, the other one will go? Our legal proceedings only ask for the protocol to be set aside as yeah. unlawful. We're not arguing about the Withdrawal Act. Uh, I've no doubt that the EU, in a fit of temper, 
might uh, react badly to all of that, but that would be for them, not for us to decide. Uh, the remedies we're looking for is the unlawfulness of the protocol, therefore the compelling to make other arrangements. If we were to lose, well, that's always the risk of litigation, uh, of course, that, 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 you, that you lose. But that's why I've always said from day one, the defeat of the protocol requires a multi-stranded approach where you don't put all your eggs in the judicial review basket. It also has to be fought politically and it needs to be brought to head in both spheres. And that's why I've always been critical of Edwin Pitts, for example, building the border posts and manning the border posts. It doesn't seem to me that that conveys much seriousness to the authorities that we are truly opposed to this protocol. Uh, by not implementing it, then we bring it far sooner to a head. Uh, and if the government's faced with a position that no matter what it says in the page of the protocol, it isn't happening, uh, then they've got a problem that they have to sort. And uh, I would have thought that was something that should have been a priority for anyone who recognises what the long-term constitutional dangers of the protocol are. I think, I think that's one of the problems. I think there's, there's a lot of the anti-protocol constituency in the political level who maybe haven't fully grasped where the constitutional dangers uh, and uh, direction of travel is with the protocol. That may well be true. You're here because I don't think anyone else could have been as clear and concise in terms of going forward. And we greatly appreciate you spending the time this afternoon uh, so. to speak with us. Uh, it's been great. Owen, would you like to finish off? Well, I just, I think it's been uh, a fascinating uh, insight into the court case and just the issues around it. And I think we're all very much more informed about the detail and everything else. So thank you very much, Jim.